0: This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 718, a conversation with Ralph Macchio. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 718. It's my conversation with Ralph Macchio, or really, it's my second conversation with Ralph Macchio. I was able to uh, talk to him last year... The Comic Shenanigans podcast. We had a great conversation. I think it was over two and a half hours long. Uh, that was episode five eighty two. If you want to go back and give it a listen, uh, it's a really I found it to be a very enjoyable read or sorry, listen, I should say, or conversation. That's from June fourth, twenty eighteen. So this episode, uh, we talk a little bit, uh, not quite as long. I think it's more like an hour and a half or so. But it was a great conversation talking about. Um, working on the current run of Conan books for Marvel. Uh, we talk a, a, about a variety of different things throughout Ralph's career with Marvel. Um, so in the writing he's doing currently, we ask some listener questions as well. So uh, there's a lot of different material kind of covered. Um, and to be honest, like in a 35-year career, I p- could probably have, you know, a, a daily, you know, half-hour conversation with Ralph and never really get bored because he's such a great storyteller. He tells amazing stories. He's been around so long. He has such great perspectives, and it's very enjoyable. Um, So I just wanted to give some quick shout-outs to some people from the Marvel Masterworks Forum who put in the questions for this episode. Uh, So we had Moore McGill asked a question about Conan. We had Muldoon asked some questions about uh, working with Mark Gruenwald as well as being an editor in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Mr. Articulate asked about writing epic essays, although I think... um, that I think the when he when we talked about it I think he was actually referring to the Marvel Tales reprints that have been happening lately but um, still a pertinent question uh, answer anyway. Uh, Shatzi asked about Avengers three hundred one to three hundred three the supernova saga and then Iraq Walker had a question about uh, just what it was like to be. Um, an editor, and what it's like to, you know, at times get out of the way and let creative types do what they need to do, or if he's ever had to rein people in. Anyways, I'll jump right into the episode in just a moment. But first, you can rate, uh, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Our next episode is going to be uh, looking through an upcoming Hachette catalog uh, for January to April. I did that with uh, my my regular co-host for those episodes, who is uh, Eric Anthony from the Cave of Solitude podcast, great friend, and it's always nice to go through those. Uh, that catalog with him. Uh, In the next month or so, um, we're going to have episodes with Marv Wolfman, uh, at least as well as if the schedule uh, holds out, as well as a joint conversation with Mark Wade and Brian Augustin, uh, talking about uh, their work on the most recent Archie miniseries, uh, Archie 1941 and Archie 1955. And because it's both of them, I'm sure I can wedge in some questions about Flash, uh, because you have both those guys who were instrumental in working together on those Flash books, so it feels like it'd be weird not to at least try and get one question in there for that. And that's coming up uh, in November, and uh, working on a bunch of other interviews that we're trying to schedule as well. So, anyways, without further ado, let's get right into the conversation with Ralph Macchio. Ralph, welcome, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? <sighs>
1: Very
0: good, and it's good to be back. A pleasure. Absolutely, Well, I'm super excited to have you back. Um, before I, I go into listener questions and kind of delving into your amazing, long tenured career with Marvel, uh, I do obviously want to mention that you've been doing a lot of writing work lately. Um, so I just wanted to have a sense of like, you know, how's that been going? Because I know you were in the uh, the Amazing Spider-Man uh, one one of their 80th anniversary one shots. You had a story in there. Uh, I've been seeing your name popping up in a lot of places. What is it like to kind of be? It seems like you're writing more than ever before.
1: Well, you know, I have the opportunity to, because uh, I'm not on staff full-time. I mean, I still go into Marvel. I have a contract with them, and, uh, you know, I go in a couple of times a week, and I'm doing my consulting editing, which occupies the majority of my time, on all the Conan books. And as we expand our Robert E. Howard uh, dimension there, I'll be doing more. But the opportunity to uh, to write... Um, you know, I like to pick and choose. And um, uh, Nick Lowe had contacted me recently, and he said they were doing this large Spider Man book, and they'd gotten two major stories done. Um, and he wanted to know, he goes, You know what, Ralph? He goes, I got a few pages. He goes, Have you got anything brilliant for three pages? <laughs> And I said, "Nick, no problem." In, in a few minutes, I'll come back to you with something that's brilliant. And I said, if "Even if it's not brilliant, tell me it's brilliant." <laughs> so I, I came up with a little little story. Um, I wanted to sort of tug at everybody's heartstrings because uh, I, I noticed, you know, that the other two stories were kind of, you know, they were larger stories, they were more uh, bombastic kind of things, and you had some great artwork in there, I think, by Bagley and uh, Eric Larson, a couple of my favorite Spidey guys, and. Um, I wanted to do just a small piece, so I I just thought of doing something where Peter Parker thought, as Spider-Man, he thought back to a lesson that he'd gotten from Uncle Ben. When he was a kid, and I always loved those stories where there was just a little bit of a connection between the two of them, because they did spend time together, and we've never really gone into it that much in, um, in many of the Spidey stories, but you know, this was really his father figure when his uh, parents disappeared, so I wanted to do something there, that something he learned from Uncle Ben about dealing with bullies came to the fore when he was taking on this uh, this robotic guy who was uh, trashing the city. So it worked perfectly in three pages. And I have to tell you, Adam, uh, a number of the things that I have done, probably things you haven't even seen because I've been doing, uh, in the past uh, a couple of years have done stories for um, a Panini magazine which I believe they produce in uh, Italy. Mm. And I work with a great editor on there, uh, a couple of great editors, Darren Sanchez and Catherine Brown, and they want you know, 10-page complete Avengers stories. And that's a real challenge because, you know, you have to, and with a three-page story, you still have to introduce the characters. You know, you still have to get a conflict in there and you still have to bring it to a resolution. And I like the challenge of being able to do something in that period or that 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 amount of pages rather than saying okay I'm, I'm thinking about a trade paper back here and I've got you know five <laughs> issues to, to make a story and I like the idea of the of the challenge of doing that because when you go back and look at a lot of the early Marvel stuff you know when they were doing Tales to Astonish and Tales of Suspense and all even though a lot of them were continuous stories um, you know they still were ten pages of of stuff, and you got a kind of a complete thing there within ten pages of Doctor Strange, uh, you know, or of the Hulk or whatever. And I like that because it's a real challenge to do that in a few pages. And um, so that's what I'm I'm doing. And, and when it comes to the stuff like I mentioned earlier about the Black Widow story, uh, when I work with Mark Basso, we try to do stories that kind of intersect with the films that are upcoming, but at the same time. Um, connect to the Marvel Universe. So the challenge there is to to work for something that, that a kid who had maybe seen the movie of the Avengers or of Captain America or whatever hadn't maybe picked up comics in a long time and probably just wanted a taste of these characters but not in a heavy continuity thing. So we're trying to give them... One off stories that completely, you know, that do a complete story in 20 pages and give you everything you'd know about the character of his world without contradicting anything from the comics continuity or the movie continuity. That's really the toughest part. So that's what I've been working on. Now I'm doing a Black Widow one. In uh, for Mark Basso in anticipation I guess of what will be uh, coming up soon which I believe is a Black Widow solo movie so that's another thing I'm working on and I'm also doing a five page story for Darren Sanchez too Um, that's more in the uh, advertisement area Um, and that's that's fun to do so um, all these things yes I have been doing a lot more writing I enjoy it because I'm spending more time at home and uh, it's fun to kind of be on the other side of the desk too for sure
0: now, it's interesting, so I think when we last spoke, um, I think we were maybe very vaguely mentioning, or maybe it was even after the podcast was over, you were talking about how you were going to be involved with the Conan once the property was kind of properly come back to Marvel, and obviously this year has kind of been a really big year as we've seen a variety of different series kind of rolling out. How has it been, like, what is the extent of your involvement in that, in that kind of milieu, and what is it like working on the Conan properties?
1: Well, you know, I have a long history with Conan because uh, back during the 70s, when Roy Thomas was out on the West Coast, I was the East Coast liaison. I used to proofread all of the Savage Sword stuff that would come in and work on this end to put the magazine together, Savage Sword, um, and work on the monthly Conan and things like that, helping out Roy when he was out on the coast. So I, I do have that kind of history. Also, I've edited um, Cole. Uh, I edited uh, Cull in black and white and in the color magazine for a while. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I wrote um, six-issue Solomon Cain series and have read, I think, and edited some Solomon Cain stuff, too. So I have a long history at Marvel with the, with the uh, Howard characters. And when we were going to work on the... Um, on the, uh, Howard characters. When I heard they were coming back, I talked to, to CB and David Bogart. And I said, look, I'd really like to be involved with these things. Um, I said, if you can, if you can get me on there in a consulting editor capacity, I'd like to do that. So as a consulting editor, um, I'm not the true boss of the books and I shouldn't be. What I do is I kind of sit in the background and all the material that comes in artwork, story, whatever, gets passed through me as well as through the, main editor on those books, which is Mark Basso, who does a fabulous job, and I sit there and I read all of it over, and I give my input to Mark, and he is free then to give it to the writers or artists as he sees fit, but I'm sort of a backstop there, you know, Mark and I will discuss something when a writer will turn in a script or an overview, Mark and I will discuss it, and um, I'll put my two cents in, give him my input, whatever, and, um, Marvel pays me quite well to do it. So I'm, I'm, uh, more than happy that, uh, they let me be involved with the Howard books. And as we expand, um, you know, over the next year or two with other things we are going to be doing with the characters, um, it's, you know, even more fun. So, um, so that's, that's kind of what I do as consulting editor. It also means that I don't have to be in the office every day. I can get the stuff over the computer and look at it. Although, as I said, I do go in a couple of times a week mm. and, uh, you know pick up stuff there and discuss things in person with editors maybe attend meetings and what
0: have you now a big book that came out this week i mean at least in the world of conan is that you had roy thomas returning to savage sword and his first issue i guess back because i don't know if it's an arc or if it's just an issue or two but him working with alan davis what was it like to kind of be able to see roy come back to a character that you know was very you know etched in people's memories of you know he's a big conan comic creator
1: Yes. And uh, as far as I could tell, Roy had never worked with Alan Davis before. So this was actually a a pairing of two guys who were giants in the industry, and yet they'd never worked together. So it was great pairing them. Um, And Roy, I believe, is doing just the two issues. Um, But that's fine, because we've got other things planned for Roy, you know, coming up. Um, but yeah, the uh, you know when you're working with him and when you see a script come in or a plot come in from Roy, and you know, I mean you know you're dealing with the expert's expert on writing Conan, so it was fun. Um, I do correspond with Roy uh, every now and then uh, because uh, he's very nice and, and sends me copies of Alter Ego, which is a wonderful magazine. I just uh, actually had read and reread the uh, the tribute to Steve Ditko issue, which was yeah. just. Chock full of great stuff. So, um, so yes, yeah. I mean, you're working with the the real legend there, we, you know, Roy, and, and of course Alan Davis. I've worked with in the past too. So watching them combine forces and being able to kind of oversee it, um, you know, in the background was uh, was a great thing. I, I did kind of to joke to Roy about uh, one thing. When I first started working at Marvel, I was not God's gift to proofreading. So there were a number of mistakes that were completely mine. that used to slip into Savage Sword, proofreading errors and things. There was one that was a classic that managed to get into print that I should have caught and I didn't. And I know Roy was not happy about it and I know after all these years, I'm sure he still remembered it. Uh, There was a scene where, where Conan is supposed to be angry at a woman who has done something. She's turned traitress. At last. She says that, ah, Muriella, she's turned traitress at last. Well, the letter had a, you know, he was he was in a mad dash to get it lettered, so he lettered in the word waitress instead, and Old <laughs> Eagle Eye Ralph missed it, so it got into print. So now what it says is, oh, Muriella, she's turned waitress at last.
0: Oh, that's funny.
1: <laughs> so that was only one of many. There were a couple of places where I actually had empty balloons, and I forgot to put the copy in. Roy had to add it. And the next issue's letter column, and told everybody to cut them out and paste them over. So I, I did tell Roy this time that don't don't worry about anything because after everybody was done with their their part of it, I was going to give it my, my and the proofreading <laughs> again. So <laughs> I hope hope he got the joke on that. I think I'm a little bit better of a proofreader now. And of course, Marvel does have a proofreading department, which uh, you know uh, they didn't have back then. So this was uh, there are there a lot of people backstopping us before the uh, the books get out.
0: For sure. I'm curious about, like, what what do you think it is about Conan that makes those comics still survive. Because, like, I'll, I'll be honest, like, you know, I obviously I knew of the legacy of the character um, and that the fact that, you know, Marvel had been a big part of kind of continuing that legacy in terms of comics uh, for many, many years until the, uh, it moved on to a, a different publisher. But up until this year, I don't think I'd ever really read a, a true Conan story. I think I'd read maybe Conan like, a what-if here and there, but I don't think I'd ever really gotten a chance to really experience the character. So when Jason Aaron launches his book and then you have, um, you know, the first arc of Savage Sword, who... Now now I'm forgetting who wrote it, which is terrible. I think it's Jerry Duggan who wrote the first arc, I think. Um, I, I really am enjoying the work, but I'm just curious, what like, what is it about the relationship between Conan and Marvel and Conan the readership that really makes it still have longevity?
1: Well, Conan is a compelling character. I mean, he draws you to him. Yeah, He may be somewhat of a simple barbarian, but there's a, you know, his story arc, his character arc that leads him from being a thief and a mercenary, all the way up to being a king of one of the great kingdoms, Aquilonia, back in the Hyborian Age. Um, he just draws you to him as a character. You want to be with him on these adventures. And plus the fact that you're with him in this kind of mythical world, which has sort of counterpart countries and cultures to the world as it exists today. But yet, at the same time, it's still alien. And you can encounter anything. You can encounter wizards. You can encounter demonic figures. You can encounter dragons, monsters, you know, pirates. It's a world in which almost anything can happen. It's kind of like, uh, you know, following Frodo through Middle Earth. You've got a great character that you want to battle alongside. Characters that he interacts with, Valeria and, and all, all, the, all the rest of them, the elite, and uh, all the people that he's encountered. And, and you're drawn into this world and he has all of these stages of life that he goes through and you get involved with him and you follow him. And no matter what stage you're at, there's a great story to tell with him. And Robert E. Howard, you know, is the, is the creator, the character, and the writer of some of the more brilliant uh, Conan stories. You know, he, he set the bar very high. And anyone who followed him, really, uh, you know, Carter and DeCamp and all, uh, they really had to reach high to, uh, to match him. So there's just something about that adventure, that sense of adventure in a lost world. With a great character that you're following, that I think, you know, anybody can can, uh, you know, if it's John Carter of Mars, if it's Tarzan, if it's Conan, you're you're an, an adventure with a character in a lost world and an alien landscape, and you just want to follow it through. So that's what I think draws everybody to to Conan.
0: For sure, I uh, especially enjoyed the the most recent arc of Savage Sword, where uh, Jim Zub was writing it with uh, Conan the Gambler, because again, it felt like it was it was different. You know, it was. Uh, the, the character having to be a little bit more cerebral, eventually going into, you know, more of the, the classic kind of uh, hack and slash to survive. But it didn't start out that way, and I, I really kind of like that interpretation.
1: Well, thank you for that, Adam. And I have to tell you, when when Jim first approached us, um, and I, I uh, enjoyed Jim Zub's work. There's, there's a, a number of guys really working up at Marvel uh, now, some of the newer writers, who I think really do... Really do terrific stuff. And um, Jim Zub is one of them. And when he uh, approached us with this three issue story arc, um, Mark and I were, you know, really ecstatic about it. Because, as you said, this shows a little bit more of a cerebral side. And he basically invented this card game. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He he really did. I mean, look, it's more effort than I could ever put into something. When I looked at it, I said, holy cow, this guy put a lot of work into this. This is fabulous. And he also seemed to get Conan he got the voice he got the character right away and that's not easy to do and uh, Mark and I were very impressed with that so we liked the story arc we liked where he was going with it and he seemed to catch the character so uh, i'm glad that you you know you you got it and you enjoyed it because uh, we all did at this end and uh, we tried to give him the best art we could so um it was something that was just you know a little bit different on the on the cone in front there seeing him in a little bit of a of a different light and um yet still perfectly in character
0: and as you said, you could feel that. I mean, the fact that, again, you have this game that Jim kind of created for this, it felt lived in. Like, it didn't feel like, you know, just kind of half put together. Like, it felt like this is a legitimate game. He's figured out the rules. And that really, that kind of detail and extra depth definitely brought me more into it because I was more interested in what was going to happen because it didn't feel like just some, you know, kind of random, you know, thing going on. You felt like this was an actual game and someone figured out the rules and I got to watch Conan figure it out too.
1: Yes. Yeah, as I say, I, I we were amazed. I mean Jim he was, you know, he, he put the whole thing together. We, we were just knocked out, you know, putting all that effort into it and um, and then going, okay, and, and you know, Conan's going to play this. He's going to, you know, deal with a guy who uh, he's, he's helping out first and then has to jump into the game himself. Um, it was a little bit like uh, a little bit of Casino Royale there, you know, a little bit of mm-hmm. James Bond in the, uh, in the yeah. casino with Conan. So, um, uh, yes, we were very happy with it. We think it stands out as a somewhat different Conan story, and um, we all were, were big fans of it
0: and, and glad that you enjoyed it too a book I was, I was uh, really intrigued by the kind of creative process behind bringing it about was um, the Conan the Barbarian Exodus which was just the one shot by Assad uh, where he just it was kind of I guess wordless really it was just this you know tour de force of him just doing the entire story of this, uh, this, this particular adventure of Conan what can you speak to you know, that kind of creative decision to let him kind of plot it out and then kind of have this kind of wordless book
1: Well, I can tell you this, and I'm sure you'll agree with me. If there is an artist anywhere who you would want to have do a wordless... Conan or any other type story, it would be Esad Ribic, because his art is so beautiful, and you know, there's just a Frazetta-esque quality to it. Um, I mean, the guy just, you know, knocks you out when out when he draws a page. And we knew it was going to take him a while to do it, because he wanted to put everything he had into it. And the fact that he had a good story to tell, and because it's a visual medium, you know, every once in a while you can do a story that can hit people, and yet we don't need the word balloons. You know, the narrative is there in the pictures. And if you're telling a good story, you know, the narrative should be there in the pictures too. And we were we were more than, than happy to let him, you know, to give him his head and say, okay, you know, go to town and knock yourself out on it. And, and again, it worked out beautifully and was just another, you know, kind of one-issue thing that stood out. You know, we're trying to do these things where we're not doing... Just the traditional Conan story, you know. We, we really want to we want to take different aspects of the character, of his world, and all, and we and we want to present Conan and say, here's here's a story you probably wouldn't have seen before in a Conan comic or a Conan, um, you know, novel, and and give it to you. So we've been trying with things like that, and and fact he said really knocked it out of the park with that.
0: Oh, for sure. Uh, I'm curious. Just, in, I mean, and maybe you won't have as much interaction with this as a consulting editor, but I'm just curious. You know, when they brought Conan back to Marvel, it, was it kind of like a, a line of people saying, "I want to write this," or like what what is what is the feeling around kind of writers wanting to write Conan? Like, is is there kind of a list of people who are just kind of pitching because they're really excited to be involved in this character now that it's back at Marvel?
1: Oh, there definitely. You know, when the word had gotten out that Conan was coming back to Marvel, certainly people did uh, pitch it. Uh, to do the regular monthly book, and then also you know the Savage Sword book and the the uh, Valeria title. Or the, uh, you know we have the other. We're, we're, I'm thinking of it as as Valeria, of course, um, because we did the five issue arc with her. But you know, if uh, we we certainly wanted to give it to a a, a major skilled hand, and when. When they had thought about Jason Aaron, it seemed to be a natural fit because he also had wanted to write Conan for a long time and was just knew the whole Conan canon backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. You know, he he said he's got the books on his shelf and, you know, the the, the spines are broken on him from having read them so many times. And, you know, Jason Aaron, I mean, he's been a top guy at Marvel for many years um, and he's got the feel certainly for, uh, for Conan. So he was, you know, would have definitely been the first choice. And uh, he, he jumped right on and has done, you know, is doing a 12-issue arc that uh, is really intersecting with many periods in Conan's life. And yet at the same time, the narrative is continuing, mm-hmm. is continuous. So it's, it's also worked out beautifully. Uh, he came up with a really, really strong uh, hook to get everybody going on this thing and um we we were very happy with it and um you know uh, he's always welcome to stay aboard or continue or do whatever else he wants with conan we we love having him on there
0: mm-hmm. and with savage sword was that kind of conceived as being a little bit more of a rotating kind of stable of uh, of creators coming in as opposed to having kind of one voice on the quote-unquote main ongoing
1: Exactly, yes. We wanted it to be a rotating thing. Um, five issue story arcs, four issue story arcs, whatever, uh, different writer artist teams, and uh, give everybody an opportunity, you know, to tell their Conan story. So that's where we were going with that.
0: What, um, this is, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second, but what modern artist who hasn't done Conan do you think would be a really good fit for Conan?
1: A modern artist who hasn't done Conan, who. Um, It, you know that, yeah, you did. You did put me on the spot there. Who, who <laughs> has not taken a, a shot at at Conan? Um, I think Mike Dauterman, um mm. I, I, I think would would be I think I got his first name right. Uh, he was the guy who worked with. Um, Jason Aaron on Thor for what, a number of years. Da-
0: isn't it Russell Dodderman?
1: Russell Dodderman. Yeah, I'm thinking of Mike for for another guy. I'm sorry, Russell Dodderman, who kind of- I'm a big fan of. And anytime you know we've we've done a project, I've always pushed his name. But Russell Dodderman is a guy who I would love to see do a Conan story.
0: Yeah, that that, that definitely I could I could see that. I mean, I, I guess if someone's done you know Thor successfully, it's not hard to translate that I guess to Conan as
1: well. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, and I, I just love his artwork and his approach to things. I think he would give a, a brilliant vision of. Uh, I'd love to see his vision of the Hyborian Age.
0: Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave Conan behind for the moment, and I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to jump back into the early days of your career, if you don't mind. Certainly. So I, I'm always curious. What was it like working in the black and white line, considering the amount of regular content which had to be created to kind of facilitate all those pages?
1: Well, in the black and white line, um, there were two of us. There was John Warner, uh, the editor, and there was me, who was his assistant uh, on there. And that was it. There was no other staff. There were just the two of us. And when I came on board, um, it was because Archie Goodwin had been promoted to editor-in-chief, because before that he had been editor of the Black and White line. And I had become good friends with uh, John Warner, and when he was promoted to editor, uh, he asked if I wanted to come aboard. So I said, sure, that was what I, how I started at Marvel. And I always loved the black and white magazines. Um, I was always a big fan of them, uh, whether it was um, any of the horror magazines or Deadly Hands of Kung Fu or Planet of the Apes, where, where Plue did such Brilliant work on there, and uh, and you had the um, uh, you had some of the great stuff that was done in the um, chronicles, the uh, future history chronicles in there. Uh, it, was, it was just uh, you know fantastic, and then and then you also had the Doc Savage magazine, and uh, you know you had Monsters Unleashed, and you had Dracula Lives and Vampire Tales, and on. I was eating that stuff up. I just love what you could do with ink and wash and wash and tone. It was so different than color comics, and the size of the pages were different. And you also could do articles and features. And I always loved that whole magazine feel, that, you know, you had a table of contents, and then you'd get a, you know, editorial, and then you'd go into a story, and then there'd probably be an article, and then there'd be another story, and whatever. So I threw myself totally into this stuff, and I loved working on them. I always loved working on the magazines. And then, of course, we did The Rampaging Hulk. Mm-hmm. Uh, which Doug Mensch wrote, and we had uh, Walt Simonson work on um, doing the penciling. And uh, that was also a blast to do, even though it was, you know, a superhero. But at the same time, you know, Hulk kind of fits in that black and white thing, too. Which he's kind of a little bit of a creature of the night, as Al Ewing is showing today in the uh, Mortal Hulk comic. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we were a very small staff. But uh, John and I uh, put our hearts and souls into it, and we had a we had a great time on those on those books, definitely. And also the creation of Bloodstone, um, who when he appeared in the ba- and the, John and I needed a a backup feature, so we kind of combined forces and came up with Bloodstone to uh, to run as a backup in the Rampaging Hulk. Hmm.
0: Why do you think those books ended up kind of going away? There wasn't as much of a market for them anymore. <laughs>
1: I believe, it certainly had nothing to do with the story content because the story content was excellent, anybody who read them, you know, knew that the, we were we were given, given it our very best. I think it was really the distribution. It was, it was just tough to find a place for them. You know, you had comic readers, because remember, you're talking about back in the 70s when these things came out, and that was really a bit before the rise of the direct market, you know, and the comic book shops. You still were trying to sell comics and, and related um, publications through newsstands, and at that time it was tough. So if these, you know, if, if you think about a candy store owner or whatever, getting these magazines in, they were having a tough play, a tough time. You know, where do I put these things? Do I put them uh, over maybe with EP, uh, with Eerie and Creepy magazine and Vampirella? Uh, do I put them with uh, monsters? Uh, do I put them with famous monsters of film land? Uh, you know, where, where do I put these things? So there were problems with distribution, and that is what I think ultimately was the undoing of them, because it was not the story material. I- I'll tell you, um, I... Uh, the, the distribution on them where I lived out in Jersey, it was so spotty that I got the subscription to them, and I got a, um, a post office box strictly to get those magazines. Oh, wow yeah because I would I would read like an issue of Vampire Tales, and I would read a Morbius story in there that Don McGregor did, and uh, you know it was just so so beautifully uh, you know just so beautifully done, so beautifully written and illustrated with the the ink and wash on it. and then I, the next issue I couldn't get, I'd look all I'd score the stands for them, and you didn't know where they were. they weren't in the comic book rack because they were they were too big, and then you'd look in a magazine section in a candy store and and A lot of times they just were, they didn't show up. So I did the subscription thing. And, uh, you know, because I didn't want to miss anything drawn by Tom Sutton. I mean, his brilliant work on Future History Chronicles and the Morbius stuff that he did. And I love Tom Sutton. So um, him, Mike Klug and all the other guys, when I missed an issue of those things, I was upset. And I said, okay, I I filled out the subscription, clipped the coupon, and I, I... actually got a post office box just so those things would come every month. The only thing was they would come folded in half so oh. that they could fit in the box. <laughs> 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 so I'd have to unfold them very gingerly and go, oh, okay, well, that's the price you pay, but uh, I, I read them and, and kept them anyway.
0: <laughs> um, when I was looking through um, you know, a lot of the different books you've edited over the years, one thing that struck me is that both, I guess, on Daredevil and... Uh, Power Man Iron Fist. You in both cases, I believe, you took over from editing from Danny O'Neill. What is it like to succeed him in the book?
1: Now, what was the first one you ma- mentioned? Because I you, you kind of faded out there. I
0: oh, think I believe was, I believe it was Daredevil.
1: Daredevil. Yes. Well, you know when you're when you're following up, um, it was uh, Daredevil, and the other one you mentioned was Power Man oh, and Iron, Power Iron, Man Fist. Iron Fist. Right. Yeah. Well, you know when I. Um, uh, worked in that that time period up at Marvel, I was one of Denny O'Neill's assistants. I followed Mark Grunewald, who, when Denny was brought back to Marvel, um, I believe Mark Grunewald became his first assistant. And you knew when you were working with Denny that you were really working with a Top notch guy. I mean, Denny had had you know made his bones at Marvel, and then became a superstar over at DC with the work he did with uh, you know with Neil Adams on Green Lantern, Batman, etc. Even the stuff he did on Justice League and you know all over the place. And when um, Jim had got him back. Um, you know, everybody was just thrilled that, that, you know, we got this legend now, uh, you know, and on the editorial staff. So eventually, uh, Mark Groomold uh, got promoted, moved up, and I became Denny's assistant. And I learned a lot from Denny. And um, I, I was, uh, felt that I was capable of transitioning, um, you know, from being an assistant with him on those books. I also was an assistant with Denny on the Moon Knight and, um, and Daredevil. And so I felt, uh, you know, capable of of jumping into the the other titles that he had been working on. Um, You know, he left a strong legacy as editor. I mean, I would hear him on the phone. Talking to the writer, discussing things with the artist. And I also was fortunate enough to work with Denny as a writer because uh, when I took over the reins of uh, Daredevil as editor, uh, Denny was a writer. Mm. So I worked with Denny there too as a writer. So I I was able to, you know, just take in the the wisdom. (laughs) And uh, I felt, uh, you know, capable of doing those books because I, I had a solid foundation from having worked with him on those titles beforehand and seeing how he handled them.
0: What would you say were some of the, like the the number one skills you kind of picked up from him in terms of like how he interacted with his creative teams?
1: Well, the, the, one of the things that I learned, and, and it wasn't only from Danny, but it was from Archie and and other people too, is that you want to bring forth the vision that the writer has on the book. You don't want to you don't want to interpose yourself to the point that the book is kind of your book. It really should be the writer's vision. You're there to work with the writer, to bring forth what he wants on the book. And this is something, you know, that I learned from Denny and from Archie, that you don't, uh, you don't dictate to them. You do see what they have, where they want to go, and you try to guide them, try to encourage them, you try to maneuver and say, okay, let's see what we can do bring forth your vision for this character, where you want to go with him in the long term and in the short term, issue by issue. And so when I took over any title, I, I kept that in mind. That that was my editorial governing philosophy, working with them as a guidance, as a behind-the-scenes person, but not someone who's going to push my, my agenda or my vision for the character. Um, always, of course, though, keeping in mind that The editor is the final word. Um, If there was, uh, like if I had a real strong disagreement with the writer about a bit of characterization, if I wanted to as the editor, I could have the final word. But I would always try, as Denny did and Archie and everyone else, you try to discuss it with the writer. And you try to say, okay, you know, I really don't agree with you that this character would do this. Convince me. And if you can convince me, we'll go with it. But if you can't, then, you know, this is where I may have to overrule you and say, maybe we're going to go with a different, uh, you know, a different feel for this particular scene. Mm. And that's that's the way I I handled it, always realizing that mine was the final word on it. But yet at the same time, you don't push yourself on the writer. You encourage the writer. You try to bring forth what they want to do in the book and make it so that they're in a in a comfortable position to write, that they're happy working on the book and the character and that they like the working conditions and that they feel that they're being, that their that their vision for the character is uh, is coming to the fore.
0: It does remind me on our first conversation and now I can't remember which, I think it was maybe Frank Miller, but now I can't remember you were telling a story about how you had disagreed with something and you kind of said, no, we've got to change it to do this. And then afterwards you were talking about it with the kind of the editorial group as the pages were coming in and realizing I made a mistake. And I always thought that really stuck out to me as, you know, you being willing to say, I did make a mistake, let's go back to the original vision, that you're not someone who's just going to stick to the guns just to do that and save face.
1: Absolutely. I, I think um, we, were, we were talking about, I think it was a Frank Miller sequence on um, on Man Without Fear, am I correct? We yes. We were, were discussing... Uh, That's right, yes. A, yes. Yeah, what, what had happened was there was a sequence where... Matt Murdock as a, as a young guy this is where before he's Daredevil and all that there's a guy who's got a gun and and Matt it, although he, he's kind of dressed up in that turtleneck sweater with the mask on and all that this is long before he's got the costume but he's in college and the guy is firing at him and he he's deflecting the bullets and he tells him he goes don't make me kill you because you know and and eventually he deflects a bullet and it goes into the guy's skull and I felt you know he, he's actually killed this guy And I said, all right, I guess he was in a position. He was young. He was inexperienced. He was doing everything he could, but the guy was firing, you know, bullets at him. So he deflected one. Now, whether he deflected it directly into the guy's forehead or he he could, you know, obviously he was not that skilled that he could have hit him in the arm. So he did what he could because he had somebody there that he was trying to protect, and the guy was... And I asked Frank if he would write some captions that would sort of explain, you know, would sort of say something like, he does what he can not to kill, blah, blah, blah. And Frank reluctantly wrote it because, you know, uh, as, as bringing a guy as Frank is, he respects what the editor brings uh, to the table. And and so he actually did write that. And I brought it out to the guys in production. Now, the guys in production were Big fans of Marvel Comics and of this series in particular, and they have been following it and they loved it. And when they saw these captions, I remember one of them came up to me and said, You know, Ralph, this just sticks out like a sore thumb. You know, is this, did Frank really write this? <laughs> And you know what I said, yeah, he did, but you know, when I got the sense from those guys, that was like going back to the base on this, going okay, I'm hearing from the from the guys that this just didn't work, that I'm shoehorning something in and it just doesn't fit. So I went back to Frank. I called him up, I got his answering machine on the phone, and I said, "Frank, I'm going to I'm going to going to drop those those captions I asked you to write." I said, "It's just not it just didn't work i, I was wanting to you to know, put something in there that that would make me feel better but it just uh, just didn't work and i and i heard it from the guys in production so then i later on i got a call back from frank and he told me that he he was still laughing you know because he <laughs> said he knew it, it wasn't working, he goes, but he was doing it because I asked him to do it. But uh, he he felt underneath that uh, somewhere along the way it was it was going to be jettisoned. And, and that's true. And it wasn't, a, you know, another editor I went to. It was the guys in production. But, you know, they were the readers. They, they had been following this, this Man Without Fear book, and they were loving it, and they were telling me they loved it. So I knew they were into this thing. And if they were reacting negatively to it, I knew the readers would if it, would, if it got published, and that's why I took it out.
0: And again, I, that just impresses me because it, you know it really speaks to how much you value you know what's going to work on the page as opposed to you putting your stamp on anything, right? Like it's about what services the story, and that is not always for some people, unfortunately, what is important. But for you, it obviously is.
1: Absolutely, it's always in service to the story. Everything is in service to the story. Your, your artwork, your your writing, everything is to the narrative and to what it is you're trying to say in the story. And, you know, again, as, as a writer, as an editor, as an artist, you are serving the story because you're, you're, you're handing this out to a reader who wants to get an experience if he reads this particular comic. And you want to make sure that he's getting a unique experience, that you're giving him everything he can from, from your resources, so that he'll have that kind of experience. You know, you get him on a roller coaster ride, and you want to give him the best roller coaster ride you can. You want to give him something to think about. You know, you want to give him some deep characterization, so oh, he's going to remember this story. And he's going to react to the characters in it, and to the sequences, and to the interactions, and all of that stuff. And it's all in service to the story. It's, uh, you know, never, never what, what you do in saying, okay, you know what, I don't care whether this is right or wrong. I'm putting this in anyway because I'm the editor. Uh, I have never done that and I, I never would. You know, you, you just don't do that kind of thing. Uh, to me, it's all about the Marvel characters, treating them with, with kid gloves the best way you can, and uh, making sure that the writer, you know, interacts with the story material. And the same thing with the artist, to the to the best of their ability. That's your job to just bring out the very best in them, and uh, and and the re- the reader will get the best experience. But you, you're in the background. You're not imposing your view on uh, on the story material.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, a book. I'm, I'm curious what it was like working on because. Uh, you mentioned before how you know, you're know you shepherding characters and then you're working with the writer to kind of have an idea of vision, et cetera. So how do you work on a book like What If, then, where it's always in flux and it's always a new character and a, a completely new set of circumstances?
1: Well, I had a lot of fun on What If. Um, you know, when I when I took it over, um, I had a group of guys that I wanted to work with on there, and, you know, I would discuss with them beforehand, you know, where does it... I, I would always say... You know what can we do here that you really wouldn't be able to get in the regular comic um you know let's really think outside the box and that's what i impressed upon the writers uh, when they did this i said let's not just do something that kind of moves it a little bit to the side that you you know could conceivably get in the comic let's do something very different let's really think outside of the box for a what-if story. And that's where I went with uh, all of the what-ifs that I was able to, uh, to work on. And, uh, and, and I always did enjoy them. I mean, they're, you know, they're uh, the alternate, uh, alternate world things, and I believe Roy was the guy who started it at, uh, at Marvel. And um, it, it's, it's just a fun thing, but you want to make sure that you're giving the reader something that he probably would never get in the regular version of that character. And if you're not giving him that, and what's the point in doing it because if it's something he's going to be able to eventually pick up in the regular comic well then you, you don't need that what if story but you give him something really outrageous something really different but yet in keeping with the character uh, that's always important you don't uh, when I say that you know do something outrageous I don't mean you do something that's contrary to, to the character um, you do something that takes the character to his furthest extreme and see how he deals with it there
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, I mean, so with this book, I believe it was kind of an exercise, but it was only every two months. So you had maybe a little bit of lead time, but again, more content to kind of fill. So how much of a stress was that? Because again, you are kind of starting from scratch every month, or every other month, I should say.
1: Well, it wasn't really that much, because remember, I'm dealing with different teams. Um, so I could get two or three of those books going at the same time. That's a good point. Yeah, it, it was. if I was dealing with the same... You know, uh, writer, uh, an artist, um, and they had a, you know a thirty-page story to do every month or two. And then I'd know I was you know we were we were in uh, a little uh, hot water. But because I was dealing with different teams, I, I could do a What If Hulk and a What If uh, Thor and a What If uh, Fantastic Four, and I'd have all different teams on them. So um, in, in that sense, uh, it was almost a blessing to work on those.
0: What was it like working with Peter Gillis on that book?
1: well Peter and I are are old friends uh, we go back a long way and um, uh, the opportunity to work with Peter I, I uh, put him on the um, on the eternals and we had a great time on there um, so I was um, Uh, I I like working with Peter because Peter always had very interesting ideas for characters. He always was was the writer who thought outside the box. And also, Peter was not a guy, when I started working with him, who had already written years and years of a Marvel character. He was coming to the material very fresh himself. So he was thinking you know, if I had written this character, what would I do? It's not as if I was dealing with a writer who already had written years and years of a particular character. Um, This was something that was brand new to Peter, too. So he was taking it from the starting gate and going, you know, if I really had the chance to do something with this character that nobody else did, here's where I would go with it. So that's why I stuck with Peter on on what if and and gave him as many as I possibly could uh, because he really thought... Um, as I say, very much outside the box.
0: How collaborative? I mean, were you working with Peter, and just kind of in terms of kind of coming up with the kernels of ideas, or the kind of the inciting incidents that would kind of create a divergent "what if" continuity?
1: Well, I have to say that that Peter, um, I never went to Peter or to any of the writers with my ideas for What If. They came to me with them. Um, I I would love to be able to take credit for some of those, but I never said, you know, I got a great idea for What If and I'm going to hand it to you. They had the ideas. They brought it to me. And we discussed the stories and I gave a little bit of my input if I felt something was going off the rails. And um, that was really it. But it was really all uh, all Peter stuff and all you know whatever writer was on there
0: that was uh, that was them. Okay. Well, you were writing, uh, sorry, not writing. When you were editing, what was it like editing books that were written by Bill Mantlo, who's obviously a, like a legendary creator, extremely creative? What was it like working with him?
1: Well, I, again, was friends with, um, with Bill, um, even around the time he was starting to write. I was kind of uh, coming up and starting at Marvel. And uh, Bill was a guy who was, uh, he was kind of a neighborhood guy, lived in the, the west side of New York. He was also a um, a colorist uh, and I believe he had worked on staff for a while so I got friendly with him there um and he um, also did um, outside coloring too uh, he would color a comic as well as uh, do some coloring on staff so he was a uh, he was a regular fixture up there and you know we got very friendly and i always enjoyed bill's writing i mean i i liked what he did on on micronauts or hulk or almost anything he did sons of the tiger you know he would pick it up and and he would uh throw some just some great ideas in there wood god he worked very well uh, with keith giffen on stuff they became uh, kind of a team for uh, you know for a period of time and i loved his iron man stuff I thought that um, I thought Bill Bill brought a, a really interesting perspective um, to the books, and he was also the world's friendliest guy and the easiest guy in the world to work with. If you wanted a change, and you and you, you called him up and said, you know, Bill, maybe we could do this. He was he was Johnny on the spot, made the change, no problems. And um, as I say, just a pleasure to work with, and, and uh, you know, he was he was just a fantastic guy.
0: It is. It's interesting when you mention the kind of the idea of him kind of being the Johnny on the spot. Because even just looking at it at his breadth of work, like every title, like you know, it's, it felt like there wasn't almost a title that Bill Mantlo didn't write. At some point, that's right.
1: That's right. There were very few that he didn't uh, he didn't touch in one way or you know do a fill in on or or what have you. Um, and uh, you know he was as I say he was a New York based guy um, and uh, work he would be up in the office. I always remember him coming in with his son. And I think his son, if I remember correctly, was named Adam. Um, and his son was a, it was a young kid at the time. And he would come in and march around the, the, uh, the, the bullpen with his son sitting on his shoulders. And, uh, you know, he'd drop into the office. And just the friendliest guy, you know, we'd go out to lunch or dinner. Um, he knew Mark Groomwald well. They, they lived kind of in the same area in the Upper West Side. Um, and things were just, uh, as I say, he was very easy to work with. Very creative guy, thinking up new characters, thinking up new concepts and things. And um, you know, uh, I, I would work with Bill on uh, on anything he wanted to work on. And and books that he, I was a big fan of what he worked on that I didn't edit. You know, I I, I loved the stuff that he did.
0: Mm-hmm. This is a, a very kind of out there, very general question, but it's something that I've seen people mentioning online in the last couple of days, and I was just curious what your take on it is. Obviously, you know, Marvel used to be, you know, especially everyone kind of worked in and, in and around the area. Everyone was kind of New York-based. Obviously, it's a little bit different now because of technology, et cetera. Um, sure. What kind of hole do you think it would leave in the publishing landscape if Marvel ever did go west? Well,
1: I'll tell you, I would certainly miss it. Because, you know, I, I love going up to Marvel, um, mm-hmm. and I love the fact that it's local for me. It's just a bus ride into the city, and, you know, I walk my 10 blocks from Port Authority, and I'm at Marvel. Um, you know, just like I was in the 1970s, I'm there now in the, you know, the, the 2019s. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I think there's something about being in New York, about the energy and excitement of being in New York, that's good for publishing. Um, I'm not sure how many of the guys on the staff would uh, be able to move out to the West Coast. Um, and, and you don't know if you'd get a whole new bunch of guys up there um, if they move to the West Coast. But I'm, I'm happy that they've stayed in New York, and I hope that Marvel you know, always is as a publishing arm anyway um, in New York City. Um, because uh, I just think of Marvel and New York. And um, yes, I think it would leave a hole um, if, if they went out to the West Coast. I don't know, um, again, how much would change in terms of story material because, uh, you know, now again, you know, the writers are um, all over the world um, as well as all over the country. But it's, uh, there's just something about being sent to New York that I think uh, means a lot to a publishing house.
0: For sure, I have a question about uh, your run on Daredevil Um, so when you were editing Daredevil uh, it seemed to be that during that tenure there started a a long line of love interests of Daredevil that kind of met poor ends or went through specifically difficult periods and experiences and I'm just curious how did you feel about how the female characters and love interests were kind of treated in the book during your tenure
1: well again I left that up to the individual writers there there certainly was no plan, nothing predetermined that we were going to make things that the love life of uh, Matt Murdoch was going to be tough. Um, it was just whatever the writers came up with that, that uh, you know, that seemed to work. And if they came to a bad end, it was then almost as if the characters themselves had written that bad end. You know, there, there really is, and that's not a cop-out, there there really is something to, when a character is strong enough, he kind of pulls you in a certain direction. Because if you if you think about it, you know, there can be a dozen writers on a character, and yet somehow, if the character's strong, if the character's origin and, and his and his just basic metabolism is powerful, he will pull the writer in the direction that he wants to go to. Mm-hmm. You know, the character has a, has a great hold on the writer, and that's why a great character like Matt Murdock um, speaks to the writer. And if he had a string of unlucky romances, uh, whether it was with Becky or with um, Electra or, you know, Karen Page or whoever, it was because the character himself sort of dictated that, that there was just going to be a bad end for it, not because anybody, um, you know... Uh, not because anybody went, okay, we're going to give him you know a rotten time with these, uh, with with his love life. It, it was never that way. At least d- during my tenure on um, on Daredevil, we never never thought along those lines. We were going to push it to a to a bad end. It just seemed to be that was the way that the character and the relationship went naturally.
0: It's interesting now, because obviously like the character's been around so long, and it's interesting when you look at back at again all the loves of his life it's almost like you know the parker luck well he just kind of has the Murdoch dating luck and they either go crazy or they or they try to kill him or both
1: <laughs> you know i I have to say um, uh, people have asked me why why I, I kind of have this affinity for Daredevil why i've um, you know loved working on him and worked on him with so many different creative teams, you know, for, for over 10 years and had several 10 years on the, um, 10 years, I should say, on the, uh, on the character in addition to being on for 10 years. It's because I really, I always have found from the very beginning, from that first issue that Stan and Bill Everett did that almost kind of read like a kind of like a nineteen fifties gangster movie, <laughs> um, especially with that with that incredible art by Bill Everett that was so different than what anybody else was doing. Um, there was something so real about Matt Murdoch, the, the, you know, the heroism of Matt to knock that guy out of the way, you know, as a kid, and then to be blinded after that, and to have to deal with that, and you know, to grow up. And to see his father, you know, killed because his father wouldn't betray his son in that fight, there was something that was more human about him to me than any other character, um, even more than Peter Parker. Uh, I just loved Matt Murdock and his world and the people that he dealt with, and and I just love that dichotomy that um, that here's a guy, you know, you've got you've got this sort of perfect superhero because you've got blind justice. I mean, he's blind for one thing, but he's a seeker of justice as an attorney, and yet what he can't accomplish as an attorney, he does as a vigilante. And there's that contradiction, there's that synergy, there's that, that complementarity, there's all of those things that are mixed in with him, plus the fact that he's got great powers. He's not overly powered. You know, he's not—he's not like a Thor guy that can, or a Hulk that can stomp his foot and break the, you know, shatter the earth. He's kind of more like Spider-Man level, but not quite Spider-Man. And yet, he's got acrobatics, so it's very visual. Mm-hmm. And he's got these visual things. He's got—he can't see, but he's got a radar sense. His hearing, his—you know you can do fascinating things with the hearing because it's enhanced, or the—the the smell you know, or the taste even, a, a, a capable writer can find all of all of those different ways to to work with him as a character. So I always found myself drawn to him. And I just loved, you know, uh, from the very beginning, even though along the way in the first 10 or so issues, Stan went through a number of different artists. Um, it was okay, because the character was, was just so so wonderful and i love the villains that uh, you know stan came up with in there too the you know the purple man the matador all those guys the gladiator and then you had um, uh, wally wood on for a few issues that was beautiful and then john romita senior coming on oh, yeah, and and you know starting out really on daredevil before spider-man and staying on and doing that great kazar story you know that took place Part of it took place in the Savage Land, and Daredevil down in the Savage Land battling it out with Kazar and all. There was something so wonderful about it, but something so human about Matt Murdock. And I really felt when he put on that costume, I saw Matt Murdock under there. You know, I just saw him there. There was, and that humanity struck me more than, as I say, any other character at Marvel. There was just something about Matt Murdock. And and it's over right to this day that that I have this real affinity for him and just love him as a character and and his world. And when when Gene Colan took over, you know, it was a different look than John Romita, Sr. And Gene had a long and distinguished run on that book. And, And he's still so associated with it. And I just love that. Um, you know, there was just something about him. All for, and of course, then you have Frank coming on, and and doing. We all know what Frank did with that with the uh, film noir stuff and the, you know, the gangsters and bringing bringing the kingpin in and and finding a way to uh, do things with the kingpin that uh, had never even been done with him in the Spider Man title. Uh, kind of making him a main adversary of uh, of Daredevil. There's a vulnerability to him. There's a humanity to him. Both as as the superhero and as the man that I don't think anybody else has got anywhere else in comics. Um, and, and so it's always drawn me to him. I just, uh, to me, he's just the perfect superhero. Hmm.
0: You obviously also had a very long run editing Thor. I'm just curious what were the circumstances of kind of inheriting it from Grunewald uh, in the middle of, you know, Simonson's run, which is, again, quite a landmark and historic run on its own.
1: You got to head to Mark for picking Wall to do it. Um, when, when Mark told me that he was gonna put Walt on it, I said, you know, master stroke. And as we found out, that was Walt's favorite, you know, superhero was Thor. When he was back in high school, I remember Walt mentioning to me that when he was back in high school, he had basically plotted out the whole Surtur story um, while he was in high school. And I said, that's, you know, fantastic. And I was more than happy to take over Thor at that point. I've also had a long, long period of run, a long, long time that I edited Thor and and he was probably the last superhero that I think that I edited before I had left the staff full-time. I really um, also loved the mythological world of Thor. I loved Asgard. I loved the tales of Asgard. Um, I mean, I loved all of the stuff that went with it. It was, so again, totally different than Daredevil and Spider-Man. But, you know, the Rainbow Bridge in Asgard, when you went there, you were, again, in this kind of alien landscape. It's almost like, you know, the high, as we were speaking earlier, the Hyborian Age of Conan. And you had all these wonderful supporting characters, the Warriors 3 and Balder and Loki and Odin. And then all of the, all of the lands of Asgard. I, I you know, just love that, um, the tales of Asgard, the whole thing that, that led up to the Ragnarok story, where they all were, they had to go out and find out why the Odin sword was cracked. And they came back, found out that it was Loki who was responsible for gathering the forces of evil that was going to bring bring about Ragnarok. And there was a sense of, you know, just these giant figures moving. And then there was also the humanity of the characters because there was, you know, the brilliance of what Stan and Jack did with any of the characters, and even with Thor, was that they humanized them. When you think about it, Thor brings Jane Foster to Asgard. Now, you're dealing with gods that have existed for thousands of years, okay? And you you think that when they're talking in the pseudo-Shakespearean dialogue and all that, Odin rejects Jane Foster and says she shouldn't be here, and you're going to get punished for bringing her here. What's the parallel for that? Every guy in high school who brings a girl home that mom and dad don't like. (laughs) There's the parallel. It's perfect. And they're going to punish the son. And what happens? The son rebels. The son says, no, I don't care what you do to me. I'm still going to go out with that girl. It's perfect. It fits in with what every kid was going through in high school. Bringing the girl home to mom and dad that mom and dad didn't approve of. And saying, you know what, I'm still going to see her. The rebellious son, it's all there. It's brilliant. And yet, you're dealing with gods, but yet Stan and Jack were able to do, they were able to humanize even a god like Thor and his father and all. And there was one one little scene that I remember, there's a, there's a just a line that Stan had that after all these years I have never forgotten, or there are many lines that he had, but there was one scene where after after Odin has to condemn his son Loki because it's Loki who's going to bring about Ragnarok. And after they put him in the dungeon of no escape or whatever it is, there's just a scene that Kirby drew of Odin sitting in his throne and he's got his head, he's got his head in his hand. His hand is up to his forehead and his head is bowed. And Stan wrote this beautiful line I've never forgotten where he said, there's a silence there. The silence of a father weeping without tears. It's a brilliant line and it so beautifully humanizes Odin that here he is the king of the gods but he's got a son an adopted son to cure but a son that he just can't bring around, you know? He's already had problems with one son who's headstrong, who is egotistical and he had to be taught a lesson. And now he's got the other son and this son is just evil. And he can't do anything about it. Even Odin can't do anything about it. So he sits there, and it's the silence of a father weeping without tears. Just beautiful. Hmm.
0: Just untouchable stuff. For sure. Um, as we're we're kind of going to have to wind it down to, in respect of your time, but a question I had on my list um, is that you were the editor on Squadron Supreme. Uh, what was it like working on that book with Mark? And did you guys kind of know that it was going to be as influential as it ended up becoming? Because it's definitely a landmark series.
1: You know, it's funny you mention that because just before I, I called you, I had uh, gone upstairs and um, I, I had uh, a few minutes and I kind of pulled the, the Squadron Supreme trade paperback out and I was flipping through it just a few minutes before I called you.
0: Oh, really?
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, that's the, that's the truth. Um, and I I have to say that um, when, when Mark wanted to do this series and he had an affinity for the DC counterparts of those characters, as, as did I, because, you know, we were, we were uh, children of the 50s, and I was reading Justice League and Flash and Green Lantern before Marvel, because when I was reading them in the 50s, there were no Marvel comics. They were, mm. you know, they were uh, timely horror comics. There were no, you know, there was no Fantastic Four Spider-Man. So my formative comic book reading was the same as Mark's. It was the Julie Schwartz, Adam, and Green Lantern, and Flash, and Justice League, and the Mort Weisinger Superman titles—that's what we were reading back then. Um, so we had an affinity for for those characters and for the counterpart characters that Marvel had created. I mean, I, I love the Squadron Supreme. I love the opportunity that we sort of get the chance to to play with with those with those characters. Um, and Mark really had a, an incredible idea in mind, which is, you know, who. Who watches the Watchmen? If, if you're that powerful that you can, you can kind of do whatever you want, and no one can say no to you, even if you're benevolent, if you're sticking your nose into the rest of society, you know, you're an intrusive factor, factor there. You're, you're kind of a scary thing. And so Mark had the idea that this would all become unraveled, that the squadron would start off with the utopia principle, You know, that they had the best of ideas to help make their society utopian and to do what they could to help out. But yet, there were those like Nighthawk who rejected this idea that they were overbearing, that no matter how benevolent they were, they were still overbearing. And Mark wanted to do a complete story arc where he would show how this would ultimately play out. And I have to tell you that he carried it off brilliantly And the one place that I disagreed with him on, but in retrospect, I have to say that he was right. I get very attached to all the characters, and I felt that we were killing a couple of them. I think we killed the Black Archer and the the Blue Angel, Um, and I felt, uh, I'm sorry that these guys are are killed. And and Nighthawk was actually killed. Hmm. And I always wanted to keep them alive. But Mark made the point that if you're really going to do a story like this, a limited series, there have to be casualties. You know, there have to be those who lose their lives or else you're cheating. And I said, you know what, Mark, ultimately, you're right. And that was a case where as the editor, I could have said, no, you can't kill any of them. But I knew that because everything, as we said, is in service to the story, ultimately, that was the right thing to do. Even if some of these characters that I loved and Mark loved had to die, it was in service to the story. It was to make the point. It was to show you that in this kind of conflict and in this kind of world, there were going to be casualties. And, you know, it, it also uh, Adam reminds me of, of uh, a line that I remember, again, a political line that I heard that's something I never forgot. Um, it came from that of all people, that, that great sage and soothsayer Gerald Ford, and in his couple of years as president. And he said something that really stuck with me, because he was, you know, uh, he would tend to be, I think, more on the on the conservative side as a, as a legislator. And he said, remember this, because everybody, you know, wants to get everything they can from the government. They, you know, we, we want all the programs, we want to do all this stuff. And he said, remember this, a government that's strong enough powerful enough to give you everything you want is also powerful enough to take it all away. And I remember that line hit me because I'm kind of a a you know, guy who says, hey, you know, let, let, let's help people out. Let's, let's have all these programs to, you know, to do all this stuff. Let's, let's see what we can do here. And at the same time, we should also remember that if you do that and you give all this power to one entity, However benevolent it may be, if it someday turns, then all that power you've given it can be used against you. Hmm. And that's something that you need to keep in mind. And that's something that I think also plays into the whole idea of what Mark wanted to do with the Squadron Supreme. That yes, they were benevolent and they only had the right idea for society in mind. But they were still an element that was from the outside that was putting their stamp on society that shouldn't be done that society, for all its flaws, needs to develop on its own. It does not want or need an outside influence of super-powerful beings that were going to guide it. Hmm. And um, as I say, to me, that goes back to that line from you know, just from Gerald Ford. I think that was that was kind of a profound thing that he said there.
0: For sure. I'm going to switch gears for a second as we uh, start to draw to a close. So I have some listener questions that uh, I'll, I'll quickly hit you with. Um, sure. The first one here, let me just pull this up, is uh, from Muldoon, and he just wanted to know, um, let's see, after a number of excellent issues teaming up with Mark Grunwell from Marvel 2 and 1, the two of them ha- ended their collaboration, and Ralph went on to be strictly an editor. Did either have plans to keep writing together on that book, or was that time simply done?
1: No, we were pretty much done. There was one issue that I came back for later, um, that I think Jim Salakrup had asked me to come back on. Mark was not able to collaborate with me on that. Uh, actually followed up on some of the Project Pegasus stuff. It was uh, what um, what Roxxon Oil had been doing. And I did a one-issue story there with Ron Wilson that I, I did on my own. But I do um, uh, I, I do think that Mark and I did what we wanted to do on 2-in-1. And, and then, um, you know, we kind of went off our, our separate ways. Although, of course, we did collaborate again um, on uh, Thor and uh, also again as writer and editor on Captain America and uh, other items like uh, Squadron Supreme okay
0: uh, and he had another question this is a little bit more general so you can keep it brief as, as, as you want you sure. just said as an editor in the 80s and 90s what is your favorite run that you helped shepherd and also can you name a missed opportunity
1: <laughs> I, you know I have to say that's really those are two really tough questions um they tough. Yeah, yeah. What what, um, what was my favorite? It's so difficult picking a favorite thing, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, I, I have to tell you, Adam, to some extent, a lot of what I did kind of blended together. I probably really enjoyed my run on Avengers, um, working with... Um, with Bob Harris on Avengers. I, ha- I had a great time working with him on that book. And even though we weren't using, you know, they were not Earth's mightiest heroes, um, and Steve Etting's art and all that, and Tom Palmer's inks, uh, that was a run of books I was very, very proud of. So I-, I probably have to say I really, really enjoyed that. As far as missed opportunities, um, there were a couple of Marvel books that I would like to have edited that I never got the chance to do. Um, it would have been fun to edit the Hulk. I never got a chance to edit the Hulk, and uh, he was, um, you know, he was one of the original marvel stable of characters, so uh, it always would have been great to work on him. I did have a brief run on Iron Man but I would have liked to have worked on Iron Man for a much longer period of time. Again, one of the original Marvel characters that I never... Uh, I, I just had like about a—I think maybe six months to a year on him. And uh, the writer had already plotted it so tightly that um, there wasn't really much room for input. Uh, It was a very good story. But, uh, you know, I was just kind of like a pair of hands on that book, so I, I didn't really have too much input. But it would have been nice to work on Iron Man for a long period of time, I think. Iron Man and Hulk. Okay.
0: Uh, listener, uh, Mr. Articulate wanted to know um, you did a lot, uh, wrote a lot of um, of the essays that were in the Epic collections. He just wanted to kind of know what the process was in terms of. It, it felt like you got to write a lot of them. So, how did you kind of get engaged in, in working on those? And are we going to get any more of those from you in the future, or is that kind of done for now? Or
1: oh no, as, as they as they continue to be done, um, uh, I I'm uh, working with the editor of. Uh of those on there, and um, he you know, gives me a call whenever they come up, and he says, you know, Ralph, we're going to do three issues of this, um, You know, we're going to do forward, or sometimes he has me do an afterward on it, it's uh, Brian Overton is the editor on those, and he uh, contacts me, and he says, Ralph, we're going to do uh, you know, a Susan Storm thing, these are the three issues, read them over, and um, do your do your um, intro on it. And we discuss a little bit. I ask him, is there anything you want me to emphasize in there? Is there anything in there that, you you know, you want me to particularly play up or whatever? And he always likes it when I bring a personal anecdote uh, into it, that if there was something that, some personal connection I had to the character or to one of the creators um, that's represented in that, um, that Marvel Tales volume or whatever it is, um, you know, try to mention it and try to, try to, bring it in there to personalize it. So I try to do that. And I try not to do plot synopses um, because that's the kind of thing where you're kind of boring the reader. You know, if he's going to take the time to read your introduction, he doesn't need a plot synopsis because he's shortly going to be reading the book. Um, So I try to avoid that. And uh, I have enjoyed doing them because I, I, I tell you, I feel like I'm writing a bit of the history of Marvel Comics. You know, a number of people have, have come to me and said, seriously, you go, why don't you write your book on Marvel history? You know, you were there since the 1970s. You know, why don't you just write your book on the, on the whole, you know, what it was like to work up there and all the people... I, I said, you know what? First of all, I don't have the talent to write a book. I don't have the patience to write a book. So that's two strikes there. And I just don't see it in me, you know? However... As I've told people, when I write these introductions, whether it's to a Marvel masterwork or whether it's to one of these Marvel tales or, you know, 80th anniversary things, I feel like I am writing my version of the history of Marvel at that point, because I am giving you insights into what happened at the time, where this story may have come from, what it was like to be at Marvel during that period, and I consider it. Um, you know, privileged to do these because as long as these books are going to be in print, and that's who knows how long, that history of Marvel that I have written is going to be there. You know, when I when they do a, a, um, a version of, uh, say, Born Again or Man Without Fear, and I've written the introduction to that, that goes back to the 1980s or the 1990s, when you pick up that Paperback or that hardcover, my introduction is in there. You're getting my version of what the history was of that project and what Marvel was like at the time. So I am writing my history of Marvel, I'm just doing it in discrete pieces.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a, a listener, Shotzi, says uh, I, that he still loves Avengers 301 to 303, the Supernova saga. Uh, and feels that you nailed the voices of every character. It was just so much fun. And he asks, what can you tell us about the creation of the story, working with Mark Grunewald on it, and if there were any plans to follow up on it?
1: Now, which book was this again?
0: He says it was Avengers 301 to 303, the supernova saga.
1: You know, I remember a little bit about that, but I don't remember that much. Um, we had fun with it, certainly. But uh, I, honest, to, honest to God, I don't remember. And 301 to 303... A supernova. Um,
0: it was thirty years ago, so I'm going to give you a big pass on this.
1: Yeah, one. Give, give me a break on that When There are certain things that i remember, certain things I don't. I do remember that we we did work on those, and I'm I'm happy that he, by the way, was very very pleased with it. And whenever you know I had the chance to to write the Avengers, uh, in addition to editing it, I was you know really happy to do it. Um, but I don't remember that much about it. I'm, I'm just happy that. He enjoyed it, you know. It, it's it's a it's a great thing, and you know we always approached the Avengers um, with a great deal of um, sort of uh, uh, reverence because you knew the history of that group and who had worked on it, mm. and so you said, "Okay, if I'm going to write the Avengers, I'm going to be on my best behavior doing this book." So. Um, that was it but yeah I I remember it vaguely and I know we had a lot of fun doing it and I'm glad that he thought we got all the voices and everything right that's very nice of him to say that
0: and then uh, last um, we have a, a listener by the name of Iraq Walker uh, and just has a few questions. And he says that he was. Uh, I'll, I'll read a b- bit of his comment. It's a little bit lengthy, but uh, please be, have patience with me. Oh, sure. Thank um, you he says uh, he, that you always struck him as an editor that let the creative people unleash their best work with minimal reining in or micromanaging, which gave us the likes of Born Again. Uh, he doesn't think it would have been as powerful with another editor. Have you ever had to rein in creative types from going too far?
1: Um. I would say I don't think that's ever happened. I, I think whenever I worked with a creative team and it was going to be long term, if I knew a guy who was going to stay on a book for a while rather than just come on for a fill-in issue or something, I knew where they were going to go because we would always discuss it in advance um, I, I never really worked with a creator who you know suddenly said, "Hey, you know this issue Thor's going to shove his hammer down Jane Forster's throat. What do you think of that um, <laughs> You know, I probably would have had a few objections to that and, and that, you know, made my voice known uh, about it. But when it came to um, anybody I was working with on any title, if it was a long term thing, I would know in advance because they would know in advance where we were going to go. So I wouldn't have a surprise thrown at me like that. I, I, I would know, okay, you know, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go over this next six months to a year with this character? And if, if I felt. Before anything was even committed to paper, just in our discussion, if I felt he was going off the rails, I would work it out with him then. So what actually got to print and what actually came to me in plot form and script form, um, I would pretty much know in advance. So it wasn't as if I, I was being blindsided in any way. Or, but but if there had been uh, you know any... Any instance where I felt the creator had gone off the rails, um, I probably would have, you know, been able to uh, to deal with it and say, look, um, we really can't work together on this. And then what I would have done is I would have gone to the editor-in-chief and said, you know, this writer wants to go this way on a book, you know, either either give the book to somebody else or... Let me just say uh, he can't do it on here. I would discuss it with him first, see where he was coming down on it, and then get back to the writer on it. But that never really happened. Um, and as I say, most of the guys that I work with, I knew where they were going. So it was, uh, it was never that kind of thing where I was being blindsided ever. Okay. Well, a good question.
0: Um, he has another question. He says, uh, you survived the purge of the Marvel bankruptcy in the late 90s, and what was that experience like at the time?
1: Well, it was... Uh, Every day that you came in, you, you know, you kind of weren't sure. Maybe the, uh, you know, maybe there was going to be, uh, the doors were going to be boarded up because it was it was a crazy time. And, you know, we've been through a lot of crazy periods. The whole uh, comics publishing business has. But uh, going through the bankruptcy certainly was tough. It seemed like, you know, every other week we had a different boss up there until things settled out. But one thing I knew, the Marvel characters were going to survive. Because the Marvel brand is such a great thing that there's no way even if it went from one corporate hand to the other corporate hand it was just too good it was never going to be broken up and destroyed those characters were always going to be together the universe was always going to exist in one form or another and now it exists as the Marvel Cinematic Universe too um, so I, I was fearful for my job um, I was fearful for my friends' jobs and whether we would continue to have them, uh, not knowing you know who was going to be running the place and all. But I never was worried that the characters were just going to disappear off the face of the earth. they they become part of Americana even before the movies. You know, every kid knew who the Hulk and Spider-Man were and all. So that never, never um, reached me that way. Um, but it was certainly a, a scary time. You know, you're, you're, you're just uncertain when you come into work. Um, you know, who's, we used to make jokes about, you know, who's running the place today. And it did pass through various corporate hands and then um, eventually things stabilized and things worked out very well and you know here we are in 2019 with uh, you know the Marvel brand being um, one of the one of the biggest things uh, one of the bigger things ever in popular culture
0: it's crazy I mean it's it well deserved I mean for I guess for people who've been fans of the characters forever it's like well it's about time
1: <laughs> it, Yeah, it's like about time that everybody else discovered what we knew you know, thirty or forty years ago, and then there is a—I have say—there is a certain satisfaction in saying, you know, I was reading this stuff when I was a little kid, and I used to tell people about it and all that, and they'd roll their eyes. And go, now, ah, okay, right. Now those people are standing in line twenty minutes to get into a Marvel movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have to say, I take a, a certain quiet satisfaction in that. It, it's fun. It's just great, and I am also so happy. Uh, I'm so happy that Stan you know, lived long enough not only to be part of those movies, but to see the incredible success, the worldwide success that those characters had. Um, and I'm, I'm only sorry that Jack Kirby, um, you know, who worked right alongside Stan, as did Steve Ditko and others, didn't live to, to really see the the uh, monumental, the phenomenal success of the films. That That uh, is unfortunate. But I'm so happy that Stan and certainly Steve Ditko um, you know, live to see it, too.
0: For sure. Last question, uh, and from the same person who asked the last two, he said that uh, you edited at Marvel from the 80s into the new millennium. What was the biggest change from when you started to when you finished? Well, um, I would say you're not really finished because you're doing consulting editing still. So.
1: Right, but when I, when I actually left full-time staff work. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to say that probably the biggest change was that in... In the '70s, when I when I had started, we really didn't have an editorial staff um, in the sense that we didn't have individual editors who had a group of books. That was something that Jim brought in um, when he took over as editor in chief. That the idea that we would kind of uh, each. A person that he brought in would have a group of books under him. That was something new to Marvel. So really, that was kind of the the radical change. Because when I started, um, you had our black and white department. And then in the color comics, you had an editor-in-chief. You had an associate editor directly under him. And then you had kind of a bullpen area of a bunch of associate editors. uh, Not associate editors, of kind of assistants who would... Read books when they came in, um, finished, you know? And mm-hmm. so that, that, was the, that was the big change, was the, the extent to which, um, you know, editors began to sort of control various books. Um, but, you know, it's just a whole different operation now, I guess, compared to what it was uh, back in the 70s. Uh, much, much larger now, of course.
0: For sure. Um, Before we let you go, I mean, you've mentioned some of the upcoming things you're working on. Is there anything else you'd like to plug or let us know to keep our eyes out for?
1: Um, I would uh, have to tell you that just keep an eye on the Conan book's over the next year, because we've got a lot of surprises planned, and a lot of new material, and a lot of great stuff coming out. So, you know, let the word go forth so from uh, this time and place that <laughs> we really do have some really cool stuff coming up with Conan. Things I can't say anything about, but but you're not going to be disappointed if you're uh, if you're a Howard fan.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, again, Ralph, thank you so much for spending so much of your time this evening with us, and uh, I really appreciate it.
1: No pleasure, Adam. Good, good talking to you. Have a good weekend.